Hey guys, this is Hannah. And I'm Amber. And we're That's Not Good, a true crime podcast. Where we talk about everything from true crime, to paranormal, to ghost stories, to weirdness. And we're kind of funny too. We sure are. Find us on our socials at That's Not Good, a true crime podcast. And wherever you listen to podcasts. Just do it. See you there. Bye. Crime Scenes and Cupcakes is a true crime investigative podcast. We discuss cases regarding the assault, murder, sexual assault, or cases involving the abuse or abduction of adults or children. These topics can be very disturbing and a trigger to many individuals, so please listen accordingly. If you or someone you know is struggling or in crisis, help is available. You can text, call, or chat 988. This is available 24-7. It is also available in multiple languages for anyone who needs mental health related or suicide crisis support. It can connect you with trained crisis counselors. Also, if you are in Wichita, there is a local crisis center. Call 316-660-7500. Hey guys, it's Mary Ann, dog mom, baker, true crime podcast maker. And today we're going to be discussing a case that I've referenced quite a few times in previous podcasts and on my social media. In this case, it was a love for her dog that first triggered friends, family, and investigators that something was really wrong here. It was also the fact that the person who ended up taking this owner's life still treated the dog with love and kindness that gave investigators a clue as to who this person was. This is a case of Lori Ann Selinsky and her Yorkshire Terrier, Peanut. This case has always had a personal effect on me for a lot of reasons that I am not going to get into because this episode is about Lori. But I hope you take from this that no matter how well you think you might know someone, you truly do not know them at all. Lori Ann Zielinski was a beautiful, outgoing, 24-year-old recent graduate from Auburn University. She was born to Arlene and Casey Zielinski on September 21st, 1981. She had a brother named Paul, and let's not forget, her beloved dog, Peanut. Lori's family, that was basically it. Her parents and her older brother, and they were actually from New York, the state of New York, but they had headed to rural Alabama because they wanted to live in the country. And that was about when Lori was 13 years old. Lori was a devout animal lover, and you could tell by the way she loved her dog and the way she was always surrounded by furry friends. Lori had been the valedictorian of her high school class and she had her pick of colleges. 
Lori decided to enroll in nearby Auburn University and her parents had bought one of those mobile homes to live off campus in. This was a really nice area and it was where a lot of students were. So her parents felt safe and secure with Lori being there. That being said, her mother still checked in on her a lot. Now, Lori majored in psychology and she minored in criminal justice. She had graduated with honors, but she was still going back to school towards her master's in psychology. Now, while she was going to Auburn University in her junior year, she had met Lindsey Braun and they became fast friends. And after graduation, Lori and Lindsay, they started working together at a local mental health facility. I am really hoping my ability to breathe doesn't detract from the sound quality here. So love your guys' feedback if I need to probably just stop podcasting for a while. So let me know. Now Lori's entire life was about to turn upside down on Saturday, June 10th, 2006. According to Lori's best friend, Lindsay Braun, she had plans to come to Lindsay's house just to hang out and have a girls' night. Now, there is video evidence of Lori going to the local Walmart to pick up things for their girls' night. And when Lindsay was speaking to CBS 48 Hours, she had told them, we were going to have drinks at my house, we were going to have rum runners, watch a movie, and just kind of hang out and do girl time. She had called Lindsay at 6.30 and said, I'm going to stop by the store, pick up the drink mixes, and then I'll be headed to your house. And then Lindsay had stated that right after that, the phone rang about 30 minutes later. It rang once or twice, and when she answered, no one was there. She calls back, and when Lori failed to answer her phone multiple times, her family and friends, they knew something was wrong because Lori answers her phone. Lindsay Braun, though, she goes to work on that Monday and there's no Lori. Also, there had been no calls from Lori to the workplace either. So Lindsay's spidey sense is activated. Now she had explained to 48 Hours that in her mind, something had to be wrong. That's where Rick Ennis comes in. Rick Ennis is another friend of Lori's. Lindsay texts him and she says, have you seen Lori? I'm really worried about her. I haven't heard from her. And his conversation is like, oh wow, no, I haven't. But now I'm really worried too. When Lori didn't show up for work a second day, Lindsay decides, that's it. I am in full freak out mode. I'm gonna go to her house. So with another one of her coworkers, she goes to Lori's home. They knock on the front door and there's no answer. But what's weird is they find the front door unlocked. And remember Peanut, the little Yorkshire Terrier? Well, he's locked up in his kennel all alone. Lori would never just leave him for days, but 
One of the things they noticed, because Lindsay's an animal lover, so she rushes to Peanut, is his kennel is latched differently than Lori would normally latch it. The other thing she notices is that Lori would keep rugs on the tile floor because Peanut didn't like to walk on tile. The rugs are gone, but Peanut's cage or his kennel is spotless and Peanut seems like he'd been fed and he's happy and he seems just fine. So Lindsay's not quite sure what to make of all of this. She decides to go looking around the house and she also notices the outside trash can is missing. Well, armchair detective, those alarm bells are going off because that big ass trash can, what the hell is going on? That's the one she puts her yard tools in. That's not like the trash trash can. She also notices the answering machine has been unplugged. So none of the messages were there. Now, by this time, Lori's mom, Arlene, she's catching up on what's happening in Auburn. She gets her butt in the car and she's driving there to find out what's happening. As she's making that long drive, she's on the phone. She's multitasking. She's calling the police. She's talking to her husband. She is making sure everyone is on the same page. Arlene had figured out, okay, once I get there, the police are already going to get to the bottom of where Lori is. But instead, she gets there, and the police seem a little less concerned. And they tell Arlene, Lori's an adult. She needs to be missing for 48 hours. And they just didn't make a big deal of it. They didn't go to her trailer. They just didn't seem that concerned. Then on June 13th, 2006, her family filed a missing person report for Lori. Now I say this time and time again when this happens, when police departments, and they've really improved recently, but if a police department tells you you have to wait 48 hours before you activate a big deal about a missing family member, you don't have to listen to them. You go ahead, make missing person flyers. You go ahead and get out there, activate on social media, get that person's face in a, out in front of as many people as possible. Start a text chain. And the biggest thing too is create a hashtag. If you create a hashtag, a specific hashtag for the missing person, what you're able to do later and make sure you tell everybody what the hashtag is and everybody needs to share that hashtag because what you're able to do on all social media fronts is then you're able to search social media. So if everybody doesn't tag you or those type of situations occur, what you're able to do is type in that hashtag and you're able to see any comments, anybody else talking about it. And if you're missing on any tips, on any comments, or anything else that might be occurring with that hashtag. So it's something I strongly recommend families do. In the meantime, Lori's mom is just 
waiting, but contacting everybody, trying to figure out what's going on. And then late one afternoon, Arlene gets a phone call and she's really hoping it was Lori, but it wasn't Lori. It was Lori's friend, Rick Ennis. Now Arlene does know Rick. Lori got to know him back when Lori was still a student because Lori hung out at the local bowling alley where Rick worked and no one really knew a lot about him except he's Lori's friend. And on Christmas of 2005, Lori asked if Rick Ennis could join the family and her mom was kind of like, yeah, but why isn't he spending Christmas with his family? And Lori said, well, I feel really bad because he otherwise will spend Christmas alone because he doesn't have any family. Not wanting to really delve into somebody's private life, Lori's mom just says, okay, that's cool. He can come on over and Arlene describes him as very friendly and very polite. And Lori spent a lot of time with Rick Ennis, so no one was really surprised that he actually, we find out, had been at Lori's home the day she disappeared. But what did surprise Arlene was what Rick tells her. He says Lori disappeared because she had gone to make a big drug deal that day. Now Arlene's shocked, but she doesn't need to go rush to the police department to tell them this piece of information because Rick, he'd already done that. And the police, now they go to Lori's trailer because they're thinking they're going to find scores of drugs. So they're going to do a raid. They go banging on the door and they raid the mobile home and they find nothing. Then four days later, four days after Lori goes missing, just before dawn, Lori Solinsky's missing car suddenly explodes into a fireball on a desolate dead end road outside a construction site not far from the bowling alley where Rick works. And it's at this moment, the investigation shifted from a missing person to a possible homicide. The investigators start to dig into Ennis's tip about Lori dealing drugs, but they don't find any evidence of that at all. And they start wondering if he was telling the truth. And that makes investigators want to know more about Rick Ennis. So they start digging deeper into his past. They want to know if maybe he's hiding something from them. Maybe he had been hiding something from Lori. Remember the Christmas Rick had spent with Lori's family because he has no family of his own? What about that? Where was his family? What's the story behind Rick Ennis? While police were looking into Rick, Rick began looking to start a new life 
And that's exactly what he does. Within a week, a week after his third interview, he jets out of town, never to come back to Auburn again. Police have no concrete evidence, so they can't hold him. They still could not find Lori, but they're not giving up. They're going to keep looking into things. Now it's 10 years later. It's 2016. Lori's still gone. And Mark Whitaker, a special agent with the Alabama State Bureau of Investigation, he starts a cold case unit. And he chose to focus on the disappearance of Lori Slinsky. And he's not new to homicide, though. I mean, he has over 100 homicide investigations under his belt. But Lori Ann Selinsky case, it held a special fascination with him. And it's a really difficult case because it's a no-body case. No-body cases are really difficult. And of course, there's Peanut. How can you not want to get justice for Peanut's mom? Rick Ennis, he's Agent Whitaker's prime suspect. So he's coming through everyone else's alibis and looking into Lori's life and things just keep coming back to Rick. His inconsistencies and his statements, it just made no sense whatsoever. They knew Lori wasn't a drug dealer, but yet she vanished off the face of the earth. Her car explodes right by the bowling alley and to make Rick even more of a suspect, when police spoke to him hours after Lori was reported missing, they noticed scratches on his hands and his arms. Here to be a thumbprint where somebody had been digging in. Now he blamed it on his dog, Gracie, but to investigators, it appeared as if somebody was fighting for their life and doing everything they could to get away from him. To top it off, when they looked into Rick Ennis's car, there were some unusual things. There were some handcuffs, a knife, and cleaning supplies. As more weird stuff has been adding up about Rick Ennis, investigators were about to find out they've only scratched the surface as to just how dark Rick Ennis truly was. He was hiding something so big from Lori and everyone else behind this nice guy facade. I think if Lori would have known this about Rick's past, she would have put up her guard and would have thought twice before ever being alone with him. And this is where former Alabama State Trooper John Clark comes in. He describes to CBS 48 Hours as to what he sets the scene of. Now, this is where former Alabama State Trooper John Clark comes in. And he described to CBS 48 Hours what he says is one of the most bizarre scenes he's ever been called out to. It begins March 5th, 1993. Trooper John Clark received a call from dispatch that says a car has gone off the highway and struck a fence. 
He pulls up to the scene expecting to find a driver who had fallen asleep at the wheel or maybe someone who had a little bit too much to drink. However, what Trooper Clark gets is the beginning of a nightmare. And he has no idea that he is driving straight into it with his headlights shining. Initially, nothing really looks that much out of the ordinary. He sees a young boy with a backpack. That young boy is 12-year-old Rick Ennis. Now, Rick says he had been driving the car. So, Trooper Clark puts him in the back of his patrol car and starts going through his backpack. But he doesn't find what a normal 12-year-old would carry in his backpack. And I gotta tell you anymore these days, I don't probably know what normal 12-year-olds carry anymore. But I don't think it's a kitchen knife and a 12 gauge and 22 caliber loose ammunition. I just don't think that type of thing is pretty normal for a 12 year old to be carrying around. That's just me. So Trooper Clark, he's, he's concerned and he asked the million dollar question. Hey kid, where are your parents? And Rick Ennis looks right back at him, no tears, no emotions, and just straight faced and says, I killed them both. That's when Clark radios the other local police to get their asses over to the Ennis home. Rick's own mother, Dolly Flowers, was shot in the face and then beaten to death with a baseball bat. That's right shoots her in the face, but then decides, oh, that's not enough. Let me beat her with a baseball bat. Rick tells investigators he covered her face, though, with a velvet blanket and placed a rose on her chest. What a sweet kid. Rick Ennis's stepfather, Eddie Joe Flowers, also known as Elvis because he had sideburns and a very colorful personality, Rick shot him in the face using a shotgun. Rick Ennis told police officers he was mad that his parents wanted to move. He just didn't want to leave school, so he decided to murder his parents. Again, not normal behavior of a 12-year-old. For two days, investigators believe he then lived with the bodies while continuing to go to school. Just go to school, come home, eat and sleep with your dead mother and your dead stepfather in the same home. Investigators also say they found what they described as Rick Ennis's to-do list, which included killing his three stepsisters. Now, the girls didn't live at the same home as Rick Ennis, and this is my personal belief. I believe that car accident just might have saved their lives. Now, at age 12, Rick Ennis couldn't be tried as an adult. He spent nine years, nine years, in juvenile detention in Alabama and was released after he turned 21. If this truly was Rick, 
they are going to make sure that they have all the information so he won't be able to harm another human being. So Agent Whitaker goes back to the car, the car that exploded. It was burned. Why? What does it hold that someone was trying to hide? The car had been facing out, the back towards the bowling alley. There was nothing else around at the time. There's no apartments, it's just a paved road. The blaze destroyed whatever evidence there was in the car. However, an investigator reported finding a tiny item on the ground nearby. He found a hand-rolled cigarette butt on the ground by the scene. Now, this investigator did a damn good job. He collected it. He bagged and tagged it. But nothing happened after that. It sat there for 10 years. It just got lost in the shuffle. And that case agent, he retired. And this happens time and time again. That's why you will hear me harp, nag, bitch, whatever you want to call it, about re-examining the evidence. But it takes a community call to arms in order to get law enforcement to do that. We all don't have Agent Whitakers. Many people think one person can affect that change. It doesn't work like that. It's the hashtags. It's the journalists. It takes all of you to keep the names fresh, to find that Agent Whitaker or other investigators like him who will pull those evidence off the shelves, who will take a look and see what hasn't been touched and what is missing. It's all of you social detectives that will solve these cases by putting the pressure on law enforcement to open those boxes and see what is missing because a case agent collected it and nobody else did anything with it. But Sorry to diverge for a little bit, but back to the cigarette butt. The cigarette butt gets sent for testing. But wait, there's more. There was a gas can that had been found nearby. And it looked just like the one that had been missing from the bowling alley where Ennis had worked. It's about a thousand yards from the bowling alley. 30 yards from her car. They also discovered that tracks had been found. Tracks that go right by the bowling alley. They also go right across the street from where Lori's car was found burning. Investigators have always wondered how or what somebody might have used for transportation. If somebody had been walking down the railroad tracks because it's a straight shot. You're not going to be seen unless you want to be seen. And those railroad tracks run right by Lori's house. And investigators say in Lori's house, once they went back and looked inside that trailer, there were definitely signs of a violent struggle. They say that there were scuff marks on the wall and they were black just like the bottoms of her shoes. There were some up 
really high. It was obvious there was a struggle in there with somebody kicking their legs up in the air. Also, don't forget Peanut, Lori's dog, who had seemed happy and well taken care of. Investigators theorized, just like with Rick's parents, after the murder of Lori, Rick Ennis stuck around her trailer for a few days, feeding Peanut and just hanging around the trailer, staying in the home of the friend he murdered. It was found in reports that the phone in the corner of Lori's bedroom was missing its cord, and it was a really long cord. It ran all the way through the room. Agent Whitaker believes Ennis used that cord to bind Lori, or it also could have been used to strangle her. But the phone cord wasn't the only thing missing. Remember how Peanut didn't like to walk on tile? Lori had placed three rugs strategically on the kitchen floor, so Peanut would feel safer to walk through the kitchen. Those three rugs in the kitchen disappeared the same time Lori did. And guess what? Those rugs turned up. Just a few years later, Rick Ennis had a former roommate who reached out to law enforcement and told them, hey, there's this guy who left behind three rugs. The same three rugs. Investigators also found a love letter Rick Ennis had written to Lori. But Lori didn't reciprocate those feelings. She only wanted to be Rick's friend. And why is that such a bad thing? Friends are so hard to find. She wanted to be his friend. But because she rejects him, he doesn't take it well. Now, many of you social detectives are saying, there you go. Go get him. You have all the information, all the evidence you need. But I want you guys to pump the brakes. This is a bodiless crime. The defense only has to say there is no proof Lori is dead. That's all they have to do to plant seeds of reasonable doubt. They will more than likely not be able to introduce Rick Ennis's previous crimes. And you get one chance in a murder case. Just one. If you screw up, You've ruined a family's chance for justice. You've ruined Lori's chance for justice. You could possibly create a situation for additional victims. It's a huge cluster. And we've seen that firsthand here in Wichita. They needed concrete evidence or they need Lori's body. Then one day at one in the morning, because you know Justice never sleeps, he gets that phone call. And it's the phone call that helps put cuffs on the man who has no regard for human life. Another investigator found exactly what they needed in the case files. Yep, in the case files. It had been collecting dust for 10 years years. I said what I said. Collecting dust 
for 10 years. While Rick Ennis had been out there living his life for 10 years, the evidence they needed to convict him had been collecting dust. When Lori disappeared in 2006, police collected evidence from her trailer. But by the time the results came in, no one followed up. The report contained critical evidence. It had Rick Ennis's DNA, and it was identified as semen found on Lori's bedsheet, blood on the interior of the front door. It also turned out his blood was found on one of the rugs in the kitchen. This was in an envelope that was sealed and never opened in her case files. Take a moment. 10 years. 12 years later, after Lori disappeared, there was finally enough evidence to charge Rick Ennis with her murder. But by this time, Rick Ennis is happily engaged to a school librarian and living 500 miles away in Virginia. He's designing and building portable yurts. Isn't that sweet? But on August 6th of 2018, which just so happened to be Rick's birthday, there was a task force of lawmen that arrived to Rick's workplace. And to me, that is just the sweetest damn thing. They did it on his flippin' birthday. Happy birthday, Rick. You're going to jail. But they weren't taking any chances. They surrounded his ass, and they had law enforcement armed to the teeth, walking out of the woods and coming in. Agent Whitaker said it was a highlight of his career to make the phone call to Lori's mom and dad that morning and tell them that they had Rick Ennis in custody for Lori's murder. And at the same time, information had continued to come in placing Rick at the scenes of all of this evidence. The hand-rolled cigarette butt, Rick's DNA. But Rick Ennis was determined to prove police they had it all wrong. He was just an innocent party in all of this. And his fiance, she's saying it too. They have the wrong guy. Yeah, I know he murdered his parents, but that was just a stupid mistake. He's not a bad guy. They even denied the claims of Terry Booth a friend that he had made in Virginia. When Rick Ennis first came to Virginia, he made this friend, Terry Booth. And Terry said, hey, why did you leave Alabama? And Rick, just being Rick, said, well, I had to get rid of a bitch. And Terry, he thought Rick was just messing around. But that all changes when he learns of Rick's arrest and he goes straight to law enforcement and tells them about that. So stuff isn't looking good for Rick. Now, during the court proceedings, Rick Ennis continues to deny everything. The rugs, the conversation with Terry, his love letter to Lori. He's saying none of it ever happened. No, no, that I have no idea where those rugs came from. I, I don't know anything. 
And so then they ask him, what about the knife, handcuffs, cleaning items in your car? Oh, that didn't have anything to do with Lori. I was just moving stuff from my apartment. Everybody has that kind of stuff in their apartment. And what about all those scratches on you and the thumbprint? Well, that's from my dog. You just, you're, you're not looking at it right. And Rick Ennis, who had already murdered two people in cold blood, and basically deceived everyone in the town he lived, he's just a victim of circumstance. Don't you guys understand? But nobody's falling for it. And on April 14th of 2022, Daryl Richard Ennis is found guilty on two counts of capital murder of the 24-year-old missing Lori Selinsky. Now, he never tells Arlene, Lori's mother, where Lori could ever be found. Arlene brings Peanut home, and he stays with her until he was 16 years old. And she had said that every time Lori's name was ever mentioned, he would go running through the house looking for her. He never once forgot her until the day of his passing. Arlene's husband passed away due to COVID and her son also passed away. But Arlene has a new companion, Daisy. Arlene may have gotten the answer of the who in Lori's case. She may have even got a twisted answer of why. But the where, the where is still out there. And I hope someone can answer that question because Arlene deserves that answer. Thank you guys so much for listening. And I hope you guys take these words to heart. We cannot move forward on any of these unsolved cases without all of you, the social detectives, hashtagging and sharing these cases. And even though a case may have a conviction, if the victim isn't brought home, that case still isn't closed for the parents, for the family, for the friends. And it's amazing to see how many people have still been working so hard on these cases. I appreciate all of you so much. Krista's case has expanded more in the past year than it ever did in 30 years. And it is all due to all of you. And we could not keep going if it wasn't for you, the listeners. So continue to follow us on social media, continue to share the cases, like, subscribe, and please, if you could review uh, the podcast, that does help us quite a bit. I really appreciate all of your help. Thank you so much. You guys are amazing.